0: Alright, so today we're continuing in John, Um, we're in chapter 12 this week, and I'm going to be reading um, verses 1 to 8, so do join me there as I read, Um, I think it'll be on the screen as well, so beginning at verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not used Lord, we thank you, um, just as we've been singing and reminded as we've sung, that in you we find living water and we never have to thirst again. We thank you that in you is fullness of life, is complete satisfaction, is true hope. Lord, we pray today that you would give us hearts like Mary has here in this passage, that our devotion to you would be the compass of our lives, that we would faithfully follow and lovingly sacrifice for you because you have given everything for us. Lord, thank you for the fullness of life that is found in laying down everything to follow Jesus. Lord, we pray this morning that you would speak to us from your word, that you would silence the distractions in our minds, Lord, and that we would hear your voice today. Lord, help John to be a vessel for your use this morning. Give him um, a clear direction, Holy Spirit, on what you need him to say to your church. And we pray also for our children being taught in in their rooms, that they also would hear the voice of Jesus. We pray in your powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.
1: Amen. The toil and labor is significant, and that is what produces the significant value. A guy, Adam Smith, has written a book on this theory. He says this, the real price of everything, what everything really costs to the man who wants to acquire it is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. It is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. And so it is with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to following Jesus. And this is actually the dichotomy of the Christian faith, because in the same way, uh, coming to Jesus and our salvation costs us nothing— Salvation, we know, Scripture says, is a free gift, the gift of God. While there is no cost to us in acquiring our salvation, once we enter into the the discipleship process, there is a real cost to us in so many ways. C.S. Lewis uh, compared our discipleship to what it was like when he was a child, when he used to have a sore tooth. He would want his mother, he would go to his mother to to help him with his toothache. And what he wanted his mother to do was just give him something for the pain, that the pain would just disappear quickly, go away, in the moment. And oftentimes she did that. But Lewis would go on to say that that even he knew that if he wanted the pain to go away forever, it, it had to be dealt with properly. He would have to go to the dentist. And the dentist would leave no stone unturned to get to the root of that problem and root that problem out and fix the problem. And that would be painful. And it would cause discomfort. But it would be sorted. And Lewis goes on to say that's what it's like when we come to Jesus. We may think we're coming to get our short-term pain fixed. But the reality is, when we give ourselves to Christ completely, He will leave no stone unturned when it comes to honing us and to making us more like himself. That will, that will inevitably be uncomfortable. And that will cause a little pain. but it will be for our long-term good. There is a cost following Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 14 there's a cost of following Him. And what we're going to see today in this short section of John 12 is the cost that Mary is willing to pay on Jesus. The cost that Mary is willing to pay on Jesus. Let's look at the context here of what's going on as Mary anoints Jesus' feet. Look back at last week, we'll see that Lazarus, her brother, the brother of Mary and Martha, had died. And that Jesus, eventually after, we know after last week, after the, the, the delay, he comes and he calls Lazarus from the tomb. And Lazarus walks out of that tomb alive. What we saw last week were some of what I said, I believe, the most tender verses in Scripture. When Jesus weeps at the death of his friend, a friend that he loved dearly, and then he calls him from the tomb. After that, Jesus and his disciples go away for a period of time, and then we step back into chapter 12 to where we see Lazarus and his sisters in this scene we have today. And as we begin to look at what Mary actually does here, the one word that we can use without shadow of a doubt of what Mary does is extravagant. It is extravagant what she does. Now, for us, extravagance can almost always, when we think of extravagance, when we say that, it's almost always used in a negative way. Someone is being extravagant. There's almost always negative connotations around that. It's a bad thing. But not when it comes to worshiping Jesus. It's never, ever, ever, a negative thing when it comes to worshiping Jesus. After all, is He not worth everything that we have? Is He not worth everything that we can give to Him? There is no gift too excessive. There is no love too over-the-top no form of worship to King Jesus should ever be seen as negative. We will find out today that some in this group thought that it was, but it shouldn't be. And the very th- first thing I want to say, really, as we get into the, t- the text today, and the very—it's very f- it's very brief, but, uh, but I think we need to cover it uh, for our assurance, actually, is the fact that if we ever doubt Uh, that there is proof of the resurrection, here we have it. Here we have it in this text. Here is someone sitting, eating, with, uh, having fellowship with Jesus and the disciples, who was raised from the dead, who Jesus himself raised from the dead, eating and drinking and being completely normal. Lazarus, sitting with these guys. I've often thought, and I've said it before, I often thought it'd be pretty cool to be sitting around this table. So here we have the disciples, and, and here's Peter. He's a bit of a psycho. He's a good lad. He loses the now and again, but, he, but he's dead on. Here we have Simon the Zealot, former terrorist. He, he Yeah, we'll, we'll include him in this as well. And here's Lazarus, the guy that was dead and now is alive. That's a bit of a dinner party, all right, going on there. But here we have proof, proof in the flesh that Jesus raises the dead. All the proof is here in historical fact, appearing, eating with his friends. Jesse Ryle says this, if we believe that Lazarus rose again, we need not doubt that Jesus rose again also. And if we believe that Jesus rose again, we need not doubt His Messiahship and the reality of the acceptance as our mediator and the certainty of our own resurrection. Folks, we can read over this text very, very quickly and not see the the significance of the fact that Lazarus was raised from the dead, which proves Jesus can raise people from the dead, which proves that He raised Himself from the dead, which proves that He will one day raise those who love Him from the dead. And I know from speaking to a lot of you guys that you struggle with assurance Assurance of salvation, assurance of resurrection, just assurance. And this is one of those times when I'm going to repeat what I say to people when I'm talking about assurance to them. When we struggle with assurance, we don't look to our own life experience, but we look to what God has said in His Word. When we struggle with assurance, we don't look at our own life experience, we look at what God has said in his word and trust what God has said in his word. I I don't know what all the connect groups are like. I don't go to them all, I don't I haven't been in them all, but I can tell you what ours is like. Just even last Wednesday night. We sat around the kitchen table and we, we and this is letting you give you a bit of a glimpse into ours. Thalma can back me up here. What we come to the conclusion on Wednesday night is that all we have is the Word of God to believe. That's it. We don't trust our own experiences. We don't trust what's going on in our own lives right now, but we can look at the inerrant, infallible Word of God, and trust that. And that's what we need to trust. And so, when we look at this text today, and we see the resurrected Lazarus, and we know that Jesus rose from the dead, we can trust what He promises to us, and that is that He will continue and finish the work that He started in us, which will be to finish it in resurrection. We know and we trust that is what He has promised to do. we talked about this verse actually on Wednesday night, but I'm going to quote it, because it's one of those verses that, even though life circumstances don't maybe suggest this, it's one of those verses that we need to look at and trust, and it's Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to His purposes. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He will also glorify. That's what He's promised. He's promised if He started a work, He will finish a work. And so be encouraged by that this morning and by the proof of Lazarus sitting here at this dinner party. So, we move on to Mary. And the second thing we see here from Mary uh, it really is this, and it's back to the introduction, discipleship will cost us discipleship will cost us. So what we have here is is Jesus and the disciples and Lazarus reclining at the table. And I've shown you the photograph before. I probably should have brought it up today again. I've shown you the photograph before of what this table would have looked like. It was probably about a foot in height. And they literally, when they say reclining at the table, they literally mean they would have been lying down around the table, leaning on one arm around the table so that there's close proximity here. And so here you have the disciples, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Mary proceeds with this lavish, extravagant expression of love towards Jesus. And the text says this, therefore, Mary, therefore, Mary, therefore, let's just just read it. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, and Lazarus was with Jesus. Uh, Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead, and so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took. Right. What's the question that we always ask when we see a therefore in the text? What's it? What's it therefore? Phil's all proud of himself. I know the answer. <laughs> uh, what's it Therefore? So that's what we need to ask. When it says, Mary, therefore, we need to ask, why is that there? It's in a response to something. It's response. Mary is responding to something that has went on. So what is it? What is it? Well, I think it's two things that Mary is responding to, and these are the things that she's responding to. Mary, therefore, does this act on the back of two things. One, she is so thankful that her brother has been raised from the dead. She has been so thankful. She is so thankful. It's mentioned twice in in first two verses, verse one, six days before the Passover, therefore, uh, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus, whom whom Jesus raised from the dead. And then in verse 2, it mentions it again, Lazarus was at the table. It seems pretty obvious to me that that this act of love towards Jesus is coming on the back of the fact that, that Jesus raised her brother from the dead. And she is delighted about this. She is extremely happy about this, and she is extremely thankful about this fact. And on the back of that, she does this. The second reason I think that lies behind Mary anointing Jesus is simply this. Jesus is with them. She is delighting in the simple presence of Jesus. She loves him. She loves the fact that he is with them. Folks, we all have people. I'm sure we all have people in our lives that we just love being around. They, they, they just make us happy when we're with them. Uh, we feel content, we feel safe, we feel loved by them. I'm sure there are people in our lives like that. And this seems to have been the case for Mary when it comes to Jesus. She just loved being with him, And it seems like he loved being with them. And so if we consider these two reasons for the therefore if we consider these two motivations for what Mary does. And we can get into a debate about the ointment and what it was and where it was from and, and, and blah, blah, blah. But Jesse Ryle says this, it is enough for us to know that it was something very valuable and costly. She broke this box of ointment and poured it on the head of Jesus. The ointment was valued at 300 pence. A pence was the daily wage of the average worker. Therefore, in modern terms, in modern terms, this ointment would have cost around 15 to 20,000 pounds. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And that's why I say it's extravagant. Her love, this act of love for Jesus is extravagant. And the two motivations She is thankful for the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and she just loves the presence of Jesus. Let me ask followers of Jesus in the room this question. Let me ask you. Mary is so thankful here that her brother has been raised from the dead, that she pours out Fifteen to twenty thousand pounds worth of ointment on them. Let me ask you a question: Are you and I this thankful that we have the promise of being raised from the dead? Are you and I this thankful that we have the promise of being raised from the dead? See, if you're a follower of Christ, Lazarus' story is your story. Lazarus' story is your story. It's my story. We have moved from death. We we believe this. We have moved from death to life. It's that stark. That's the reality. We read that in the Bible. That's what we trust. We believe that we've been moved from from death to life. But here's the problem with us. And here's the problem with me. I don't see it as dramatic as that. I don't. I mustn't. Think about it. If someone in this room this morning just went out, just passed, and I talked about it last week in the Raising of Lazarus to Death where we know that in, in, in NE there, there's recess happens all the time and in hospital resource happens all the time. But what if someone in here this morning died and they were out for a good time? I don't mean a good time as in a party. I mean a long time. Um, what if they were out for a long time and they were brought back to life? What would we do? What would we do? What would our reaction be? how long would we talk about that how long would I reference that like TJ TJ when, how long ago was your cancer for you I'm still talking about it like using that in sermons and all how long would we use that because possibly it'd be the most dramatic thing that we've ever saw in our lives right yeah and here's the reality For those of us who are followers of Christ, we have that reality in our hearts. We have been raised from death to life. Are we thankful? Do we show it? You see, the response of Mary should be our response too. It should be one of thanks. Thanks. The second motive for this extravagance towards Jesus is the fact that she just loves being with Jesus. She just loves being with him. She loves being in his presence. She loved that he was there, and she wants to demonstrate that love for him in this act. Again, follower of Jesus, we have the daily minute-to-minute presence of God with us. What's our response? What's our response? Are we thankful? Do we show it? I know that I don't. Folks, Mary's love and thankfulness to Jesus cost her. In this case, it cost her financially. She, out of a heart of love and thankfulness, gave up something she valued extremely for something she valued more. And that was Jesus. You see, it was more than words to Mary. It was more than words. It meant more than just simple words. You know, words mean very little. Actions Mean stuff. Action is where it's at, and Mary acts to show her love and to show her thankfulness. Throughout the centuries, throughout church history, it has always cost the disciples of Jesus something to show their love and thanks to him. Always. It has cost disciples their reputations. It has cost disciples their wealth. It has cost them the relationships. It has always cost, in every generation, it has always cost true disciples of Jesus something. And a question for us as we sit here in our lovely, comfortable building on this lovely Sunday morning is this. What is following Jesus costing us? What is following Jesus costing us? I just saw this morning, uh, and so this is a reactionary comment, but I just saw this morning on Facebook uh, that that a counselor has stepped away from a particular party because of following Jesus. That's a cost. That is a real-time, real-terms cost for following Jesus. And fair play. But what is it costing us to follow Jesus? Living for Jesus will cost us we need to look at our lives and ask ourselves the question, what are we giving for Jesus? And when I say that, in this, as I say, in this particular instance, this was a financial cost to Mary. But it doesn't have to be a financial cost. It can be anything. But we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we giving? What are, what's it costing us to follow and love Jesus? I often say we would never, we don't like being called liars, do we? Nobody likes to be called a liar. But if Marcus gets up in the second set, I don't know what the second set of worship is planned, but if Marcus gets up in the second set and we break into a rendition of all to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give not only will we be lying but we'll sing those lies happily. What a, what's it costing us to follow Jesus? It cost Mary here an extreme amount of extravagant love for King Jesus. So, she pours this ointment out on Jesus. Now, you would think this would be met with overwhelming delight by the disciples. You would think Here's a woman, and she is literally giving all she has to Jesus, to worship Jesus. She is class. Would we not do that ourselves? Would would we do that? Would we really? Would we? Or would we be like the disciples? Because look at the response it's met with. Let's just read it together. She pours this nor this ointment on the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair, and the house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Beautiful, beautiful scene. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bags, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. instead of joy, instead of affirmation, instead of encouragement, this act of love, extravagant love towards Jesus is met with disdain by Judas. And here's the reality, the unfortunate reality that we learn from this response, and it's this, not all who look like disciples are disciples. Not all those who look like disciples are disciples. Real discipleship gives. We see it here clearly. Real discipleship gives. Mary gives. False discipleship consumes. Real discipleship gives. False discipleship consumes. We see here the dramatic difference between Mary and Judas. Mary, on one hand, recognizing who Jesus is, pours out this ointment. The fragrance fills the air. There's so much abundance that she has to wipe the excess with her hair. Judas sees all this and is only concerned about himself. There couldn't be a more stark difference. Folks, Judas has been with Jesus from the start. He's been there. I love what Augustine says. Uh, he says this, Judas was, a, was, a false, was false from the beginning. He was present at the institution of the Lord's Supper. Listen to this. He was a communicant. For all of us from those, for all, those of us from uh, Presbyterian backgrounds, we will know what that means clearly. He was a communicant, and yet he was false. Folks, that's why in 1 Corinthians, when we come to communion, the Apostle Paul tells the church to examine themselves. Because you can be in here and you can sing the songs and you can do the thing and you can look the part and you can say even the right things and and, and look the, look the, the real deal. And the reality is this, you may be false. Just as Judas was. The fact that we are in here singing songs and doing the thing is no guarantee of true discipleship. What is a guarantee of true discipleship is this, is that we have repented of sin, turned in faith to Christ, and our affections are then set on Him. That's what it is to be a disciple, and we are for His kingdom and not ours. Not ours. It's obvious here that Judas was ever only concerned about himself, John here calls him a thief. And the only reason he complains here about Mary is because he reckons that, that if, it, if this had been sold, it would have went into the money bag, and who would have benefited? Him. He would have stolen from it, and he would have been Okay. Jesus says this, beware of false prophets who come amongst you in sheep's clothing, but they are inwardly, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says you will recognize them by their fruits, or grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or or figs from thistles, Matthew 7. Judas was a false prophet and a wolf. And the reality is, folks, as I've said often, the church is no different today. There will be false prophets and there will be wolves, but one surefire way in which we can see a wolf is this, is that they are all about themselves. They are all about themselves. They are self-promoting, self-serving, self-indulging, They're all about themselves. They are consumers rather than givers. Judas led the attack here. But unfortunately, the other disciples echoed him in his criticism. Matthew 26, 8 says, but the disciples were indignant when they saw this. Why the waste, they said. Mary knew that this was no waste. Mary knew that this extravagant offering of love was no waste on King Jesus. But she received the criticism anyway. And this brings us to our last point, really, today, and it's this. If you go all in for Jesus, you will receive criticism if you go all in for Jesus, you will receive criticism. Fact. But Jesus will defend you. But Jesus will defend you. Look at this. This is absolutely beautiful. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Jesus looked at him and said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Mary here receives criticism for her extravagant worship of Jesus. And folks, if you go all in for Jesus, if you are giving yourself over to the work of the kingdom, you will receive criticism. Count on it. Unfortunately, as we can see here, some of the loudest criticism will come from from those who you think it shouldn't come from. but it's a reality. We've seen it throughout church history. It is a reality. When Jim Elliott, the great uh, missionary, set his sights and going to the unreached tribes in Ecuador, his Christian parents asked him to consider whether his gifts could not be better used among the young people in America. He replied with a scathing denunciation of the lukewarm church in America. He went to South America, where he and four others were murdered for trying to tell a lost tribe about the love of Jesus. They wasted their lives for Christ. When John Patton let it be known that he had planned to move with his new wife to take the gospel to the cannibals cannibals in South Sea Islands, an old man in his church would say to him, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. Watch yourself. You'll be eaten. Don't go. Finally, Patton grew exasperated and replied, my dear sir, you're getting up in years, and soon you will be laid in the grave and eaten by worms. If I can live, if I can but live and die honoring the Lord Jesus, it doesn't matter to me whether i be eaten by cannibals or by worms. And on resurrection day, my body will be arise as far as yours. Selfless devotion to Christ cost these disciples their lives. Where did the opposition come from? Was it Satan? Unfortunately, not. It was the church. But here's the thing you will receive criticism, you will have your reputation possibly torn to shreds, you will be called names but Jesus will defend you. But Jesus will defend you. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. The psalmist knew what it was for the Lord to defend him. He said in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So, what I want to encourage you to do today, what I want to encourage me today as I look at this text and I see Mary's extravagant devotion to Jesus is this, go all in and stuff the criticism because Jesus will defend you. Jesus will defend you. What's holding you back? What's holding you back? Mary gave this extravagant gift to Jesus. She was criticized, and Jesus stood in and defended her. Folks, our discipleship, the reason we can sit here today, and if we're followers of Christ, we can say we're even disciples, is this. It cost Christ everything. Everything so that we could be his disciples. Our ultimate defense cost Christ everything. The only reason we get to be disciples and the only reason we can stand in defense of Satan lies, Satan's lies against us is because he gave everything. I don't know if Mary knew this. I don't know if she had a, she, the Holy Spirit had, had revealed to her what Christ would do. I don't know any of that. But I do know this. We stand on the other side of the cross looking back at what Jesus did. And therefore, therefore our response should be even greater than that of Mary's. I don't know if she knew what was coming down the line or not. But we stand and we look back at it. And often our response is lukewarm, to say the least. And I am talking about myself. But we do know this. Our discipleship cost him everything. Our defense against Satan cost him everything. Therefore, he is worth it all. He is worth it all. Let me pray. Father, I pray that through the power of the Spirit that our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, that we would see in Him our the sacrifice that we need and the defense that we have. the only reason we can stand, the only reason we can do anything is because of Christ. And so, Father, help us to worship Him. Help us through the Spirit to see Him more clearly. Help us to genuinely evaluate our own lives and see what is this discipleship, Thing that we say we're involved in actually costing us. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your sacrifice, for your love, for your grace, and it is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so we respond. Now, in the only way, only fitting way that we could respond, to be honest, in, in, in communion. And we remember Jesus' body broken for us. We remember His bloodshed. But remember what I said about 1 Corinthians, that passage there where Paul writes to the church, and he says to the church, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Before you partake in the Lord's Supper, examine yourselves. Repent of sin and turn once again in faith to Christ. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I lovingly ask that you don't take communion with us. It doesn't make sense for you to do so, and so I ask that you don't. But let's come now and worship Jesus for who He is.